Take a network break, grab a virtual donut and prepare yourself for our weekly tumble through the news. Today we have some follow-up to go over. Always good to get your FU and uh, glad to get some this week. Some unusual vendor partnerships going on. We've got news on the Broadcom VMware merger. AMD has some announcements after a big shindig this week. There's some interesting news on some faulty networks and immersion cooling. But before we get to the good stuff, let's pay the bills. First of all, Backbox is a multi-vendor network automation platform that lets you automate every device in the network through their single pane of glass. It supports network and security devices from 180 different vendors. And for example, you can execute an OS upgrade across Cisco, Checkpoint and Palo Alto firewalls with a single click. Backbox is the best kept secret in automation, running on over 100,000 networks worldwide. You can get an email copy and see for yourself. There's demos at backbox.com slash packet pushes. That's backbox.com slash packet pushes. Stick around for a discussion at the end on Nokia's Photonic Service Engine, or PSE Optics. Now, the company has released version 6 of their PSEs, and we'll be talking about the growing challenges of coherent optics and the, uh, the ability to actually put those optics directly into your everyday router, and suddenly you've got a DWDM edge. It's super interesting. And the idea here is that you can actually run 400 gig coherent DWDM grade optical straight out of the box, and that's changing what we're going to do with the last mile. And particularly, we want to see how Nokia is doing it with their PSE6 family. Our guest is Serge Mellor. He's actually the head of marketing for optics at Nokia. It's a nerdy, nerdy discussion. It's well worth staying on board. Just because you don't know anything about it, DWDM doesn't mean you shouldn't listen. And as always, if you like Network Break, don't hesitate to check out plenty of our other podcasts. But today I'm just going to promo Heavy Strategy because my co-host today is Jonah Till-Johnson. Jonah is my co-host on the Heavy Strategy where we spend 30 minutes deep diving on the topics of IT strategy. Jonah, welcome to the Network Break. It's a chance to shine on a different show. This is a different format to us, so hopefully we can keep it on track. How are you today? I am doing great, Greg, and thanks for having me. No problems. All right. So go over, find Heavy Strategy. It's a separate podcast feed at the moment. We'll be moving it into the full feed in a little while so that you'll be able to get see it more often and find maybe something in there that you like. But let's get into the news. Uh, let's start with the FU. Got an email here from Anthony, and he's saying, with all the talk of SASE and SD-WAN vendors providing a total solution, you don't hear of considerations of resiliency in a multi-vendor approach. What's your take on this? Now, he made a good point. He said there was always a consideration for resiliency in your network carrier, and you needed a diverse paths and redundant equipment, and part of that was to actually have multi-vendor strategies. Maybe at one end you'd have Cisco routers, the other end Juniper. And I had to think about this a while ago because when SD-WAN first came on the scene, you sort of start to think, well, do I need to have a multi-vendor strategy? And then it struck me in underlay networking, that's where you directly connect your bandwidth to your router. Yes, you need interoperability and yes, you need multi-vendor strategies because you want your Cisco routing protocol to work with your Juniper, with your Extreme, with your whatever, right? But when you start doing overlay networks, some of that starts to fall away, right? So what we need now is the ability to say, can I run two SD-WANs over the same physical infrastructure? And the answer is yes. So let's say you've got an existing SD-WAN vendor A, and you've decided that they're not meeting your needs, or the pricing's not right, or the licensing isn't fitting what you want to be able to do and you think, I want to put it up. It's not hard to replace that SD-WAN with another because they exist over the top. You can run two of them side by side because the physical infrastructure underneath doesn't change. That is, at the branch, you can have vendor A and vendor B. You unplug vendor A, you plug in vendor B, and they connect to their own overlays. So, And because things like layer 2 handoff is always Ethernet, layer 3 handoff, handoff is always IPv4 or IPv6, the routing handoff is typically BGP these days, but mostly it's just an MPLS port with Ethernet on it. 
And so you just don't have those issues anymore. The devices are all standard. The network is all standard. So I don't think you need any to have any special considerations about migrating between vendors. You given any thought, Jonah? I have, and I think you're correct. I mean, you also raised the issue of the Cisco Viptela certificate issue, which is, as you, you know, as you were thinking, it is an inherent risk anytime you go with a single vendor. But basically, the whole point of SD-WAN is that you can connect across a range of physical connectivity types, whether it's wired or wireless. And if one of them goes down, you have automatic load balancing. What we've found is that operational headcount and time goes down by about 90% once mm. you implement SD-WAN for that reason, because mm. failures don't automatically require any troubleshooting. Now, you still need redundant or resilient physical links. Exactly. But they can. Yeah, you don't need to interrupt. Yeah, you don't need multi-vendor devices. There's no real reason, unless you happen to be using the Viptela from Cisco and you, you kind of got screwed in the certificate issue. But that's a special yeah, a issue that just kind of... Yeah, the yeah. better question might so, no. be... I think that it's summed up by the better question might be, should Aruba's SD-WAN platform be able to operate Viptel or SD-WAN hardware? And I think there's no value in that. You're either into Aruba's no ecosystem yeah, or you're into Meraki. Yeah. You're not going to run a mix of both, I think, going forward. And because it's an exactly. overlay, that's viable. No need. All right. Our second piece of follow-up today is from Warren. He said on episode 434 of Network Break, you mentioned that it's kind of a shame that Meraki is becoming all things. The SD-WAN campus is all becoming one thing. And I said, I, and he points out that I, he actually agrees with me, which is nice. It's not every day people agree with me. He says, you, I think you answer the, the case. It's a drive for profit in a line of business within Cisco. Network and IT operations is now spanning the WAN and LAN. So he agrees with that particular perspective. And he says that competitors have end-to-end -end solutions featuring all-in-one management from a single site to the campus, and that's putting positioning pressure on Cisco. Are you seeing that out there in the world where Meraki is becoming the de facto enterprise networking from Cisco? We are starting to see definitely increasingly high profile from Meraki. But I would say that, uh, interestingly enough, in the real world, you're not seeing a lot of single vendor solutions, despite what Cisco would tell you, that you're getting an all Cisco solution. Most people do have multi-vendor solutions more broadly. I do agree with you that it's kind of a shame that Meraki's feeling the pressure to go that way, but I think they're correct to do so. Yeah. My suggestion to you is to think that does Cisco see the enterprise as a long-term business model or would they rather push everybody into the Meraki service model? Say, everybody say outside of the FTSE, you know, the top 1,000 companies, I think will be Meraki in the long term. And Cisco won't sell Cisco equipment as we see it today directly and people won't be self-assembling their own solutions. They'll take an off-the-shelf solution with Meraki branding for it if you're not in the FTSE, say, 500 or FTSE 1000. Agreed. All right, let's get to our first story. This is an interesting story and something that we don't actually see very often or perhaps even at all so far. In this case, NetBrain and Paisler have collaborated to actually take their platforms and integrate them together. And in this case, what they're actually doing is that Paisler's PITG solution is flagging a network or abnormality that it thinks is worth investigating, such as with an application slowdown. And then NetBrain instantaneously build a dynamic map that shows the actual traffic paths between the app server and the end user and then provide you with a map tailored to the problem at hand. And then you get this specific set of tools related to the specific issue, not you having to say, oh yeah, that's coming from branch A and going to the, the here and therefore I need it needs to go through this router. NetBrain is using its mapping capabilities and its problem recommendations capabilities and then combining with PRTG as a collector. Now, 
I think what we've seen a lot of the time is vendors go out there with their SDN, put an API on it and go, hey, we've got this great API. If only people would come and use it. And that's the end of it. Lots of marketing, noise and fluff, but nothing actually happens. But here we have an interesting case of two smaller vendors with specific niches for their products actually cooperating. Got any thoughts, Jonah? Honestly, I don't. I think, you know, I, I read this and I think the good thing about this that I find most interesting is the fact that it's the map that's drawn is drawn at exactly that point in time when you need to do it. So mm. essentially you you carve out all the unnecessary stuff of what it looked like five minutes ago and really you just see the actual traffic paths at that mm. moment with the map tailored for what you're trying to deal with and then you can go in and solve the problem. I think that's actually the most interesting facet of all of this. Yeah, and you don't need AI or some sort of governs to do right. that. It's just sort of like focus on the important thing. Here's the problem, go fix it. Yeah, I wonder if this would actually be reasonably priced. Anyway, let's move on to our next story. Google sells its domain names registrar business. Now, this has been quite hot on social media. Squarespace has announced that it is now buying Google's domain name business for approximately 10 million domains hosted on Google domains spread across millions of customers. I find this super hard to believe that Google would sell its domain name business. And I was sort of stretching a little bit to try and consider what is it that they're doing? Why would they sell what is such a core part of their business for any reason? And the only thing that I could come up with is that it's part of Google Workspace. That's Google Docs and you know Sheets and all that sort of stuff. And a lot of companies have their own domain name associated with that, especially for their Google Mail. And that retail sort of approach there where you're selling to lots or like millions of SMEs might be a business that's better suited to Squarespace's type of model, which is more retail, you know, web hosting, that sort of thing. And so Google's unloading it. I just find it staggering, though. To me, no, this makes perfect sense. They're battening down their hatches for the biggest existential fight of their life because you got to put this in the broader context. Publicly available LLMs are an existential threat to Google because mm. if you no longer want to Google something but instead chat GPT it with Microsoft, all of Google goes away because still 90% of their revenue comes from selling eyeballs to advertisers. And if they mm -hmm. are no longer capturing those eyeballs, they're screwed. Mm. So basically, they're just you know, they're just stripping away everything that's not core to what they want to do. They're going into do battle, probably do very well. To me, this is a great strategic move because... Why would you be in this business? Why would you assume the overhead to manage such a business when you've got more important things on your plate? Okay. So you're saying that it's basically a business decision. We don't want to be running domain names. We don't want the distraction of being a registrar. It's not a significant business for us. So just ditch it out. Exactly. And you put this in the broader context of the number of layoffs they've been having. You can't just, you know, you can't just do layoffs like that by reducing every business by 10% or 20%. At some point, you have to just start shuttering entire lines of business or getting rid of them. And you think Google perceives itself as being under attack in that Absolutely. AI is Absolutely. going to... Absolutely. And, right. okay. and it's a correct perception, by the way. That's All very right. much true. All right. The next story is about a quantum cascade. Now, this is your story. So why don't you lead us out? Basically, there was a really interesting article in Forbes recently along the lines of the quantum cascade is going to be the end of the world. What is the quantum cascade? I know it sounds like a dishwashing detergent, but it's not. The Forbes columnist talks about the possibility of a quantum computing-based attack on the financial sector, and he says that the impact of such an attack based on his econometric models, I love that word, econometric <laughs> models, would cost trillions and throw the U.S. economy into a six-month recession. I kind of thought, gee, why six months or not five eight, but never mind that. We're talking economics here. False precision is the core of economics. All right. Anyway, the key thing here, I wouldn't say this is something that you need to be immediately concerned about, mm. but 
there is an ongoing question of how quickly quantum will break cryptography. And there are signs that it's happening faster than anticipated. The Swedes managed to do it in February. So the point here is that if you're doing anything that's based on unbreakable cryptography, such as, say, using blockchain at the back end for integration between your systems, you better be thinking about how to quantum proof it. So that's the real message of this. So last week we talked about a satellite network being built just to exchange quantum keys and to exchange cryptography keys over quantum. And that's going to be a key part of this. If uh, It's actually not. That, that's, that's a workaround that doesn't work very well. The whole quantum key distribution is a hack until we actually get to the right solution. There are companies out there that will do things like quantum entanglement-based networking, which is true quantum-proof cryptography. So that's really where you need to go. It's not quantum key distribution is sort of a, a side route into a cul-de-sac. Not enough time here to explain why. So you're saying rotating the keys faster isn't actually going to make your network more secure. Exactly. What you what you actually want is entanglement based encryption, which you can do with entanglement based networking. It's actually surprisingly available today. But point is, you have to be having somebody in your in your organization actually be thinking about this and making intelligent decisions, which. A year ago, you would have said that so far out. We don't need to hire that person. Now you do. Just for the record, Econometrics, according to the International Monetary Fund, uses economic theory, mathematics, and statistical inference to quantify economic phenomena. In other words, it turns theoretical economic models into useful tools for economic policy making. I, I question. I question the useful. I do no. know what a, a, <laughs> econometrics basically means. Yeah. Opinions w- dressed up with math. All right. Let's just take a step to talk about Backbox. Backbox is a network automation platform that supports network and security devices from over 180 vendors with thousands of pre-built automations and a scripting-free way to build new ones. Now, with Backbox, any task that could be performed manually on any device on the network, regardless of vendor, can be automated. Intelligent, conditional automation, streamlined tasks that used to take several steps to perform now just become simple activities. So, for example, verifying available storage space on devices before beginning an operating system upgrade. So, built from the ground up as a multi-tenant solution with role-based administration and a REST API, Backbox is the most powerful and scalable network automation solution on the market, they say. And with their award-winning customer support, you are never on your own. See why businesses and service providers worldwide trust Backbox to automate critical tasks on over 100,000 networks with a free evaluation copy of the software. You can get that evaluation copy at backbox.com slash packetpushers. It's worth checking out. We did have a couple of shows with them. This product has actually been around for like 15 years. So they've actually got a lot of automations in there and a lot of legacy technologies that they support. It's just not necessarily obvious. So worth checking out, backbox.com slash packetpushers. Let's get back to the news. Uh, we continue to watch the Broadcom and VMware takeover. We flagged last week that the EU part might be getting a little bit closer. And, it, and Broadcom continues to slow step its ways forward. The uh, reports this week that the Chinese antitrust regulator is progressing towards a positive outcome for Broadcom. That I'm not going to go into the details. You can follow the link to Reuters if you want to know. I guess the story that I want to say this week is the Chinese antitrust regulator is sort of looking positive about it, subject to various terms and conditions. We know that the EU regulator flagged last week that it's sort of positive. The US FTC has signaled that it's going to wait a while to see what the EU does. And the UK has actually objected at this point, and it's going to be a while. So they're the four bodies that seem to be objecting to it. But at the moment, Broadcom looks set to win the nod of approval for the VMware takeover. I doubt it'll be this year, though. You think it's a good thing, the Broadcom VMware thing? I think it's a thing. <laughs> that's, that's about as far as I can go on this. I'm sort of watching this going, okay, typically what happens, as we all know, is that the the more mergers, the slower the rate of innovation. So I think it's generally 
you know, generally has been a bad thing, but it's going to happen. So we might as well suck it up and deal with it. Yeah. This week also, AMD was talking about its Pansando DPU. I went through a whole bunch of videos. I watched their data center and AI technology premiere. And then I watched a publication of a unlisted YouTube video from Pansando itself talking about the product. But there's still nothing new to announce. As best as I can tell, they were just talking about the product. Now that AMD is larger than Intel and continues to grow, by the way, it knows mm-hmm. that it needs DPUs. And so the Pensendo people got up on stage with Oracle and Microsoft and proceeded to tell us just how marvelous their data center uh, DPUs were and all this sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, I'm finding it harder and harder to discriminate between Bluefield from Nokia and what Pensendo is doing. What strikes me here is the fact that Pensando isn't doing anything new. It's still bedding in. So I think Pensando probably got a fair while yet before AMD actually absorbs a company and then turns it around to do something big. Have you been watching Pensando? I haven't been paying close attention to it, but I think the the relevance here, first of all, there's quite a lot to be said for being a second adopter. The Burger King strategy works great. You've heard me talk about this. Mm. You know, here you have, uh, you know, someone like NVIDIA who's out doing, forging ahead, doing all the doing all the creative thinking, that's the equivalent of McDonald's going out and figuring out exactly where in the city it needs to place a new McDonald's. And Burger King just sits there and waits, lets, lets McDonald's do all the hard work and then puts a Burger King on the catty corner to the McDonald's. <laughs> and so basically by by doing this and being a fast follower is the way they dress that up in marketees. Mm-hmm. I think it's actually a bright move for AMD to have bought them. And I think it's, an, you know, I think it's fine that they're not necessarily doing anything new. The importance of everything they've been announcing is really that AMD is taking its Pensando acquisition very seriously. Okay. It'll be interesting to see how it works. One thing I did notice is that AMD has announced a smart switch, which they've partnered with HPE Aruba. So now you can have the AMD servers, the AMD DPU, and now the AMD smart switch, which comes from HPE Aruba. Of course, Pensando was originally invested in by HPE Aruba. And so now we have an interesting idea. They did announce a year ago the distributed services switch. I haven't seen too much marketing or evidence that this has been a substantial partnership, but it does seem like AMD is going to partner with uh, Aruba for physical switching and, and start to look at how they can offload functions actually from the DPU into the switch. A little bit un- clear at this stage, but I think that's where they're headed. Maybe you want to watch the videos uh, associated with that and see if that's what you get out of it. They'll be linked in the show notes. The next story I want to talk about is that Amsterdam's ProRail was taken down for several hours uh, in a couple of weeks ago. And I saw this link, uh, post on LinkedIn that was talking about it, and it was a faulty SFP. It's something that we don't actually see too often these days. Generally, SFPs are much better quality and whatever. But in this case, it was a single SFP it was a cheap one, as far as I can tell, and they're sort of blaming the fact that there's a no-name brand that somebody cut a corner on quality or whatever. But to me, it sounds like they weren't monitoring the SFP to detect if they were faulty. But uh, they were saying that after two hours, they couldn't work out what it was, so they implemented a flip, and it takes four hours to go to the flip to, to roll over to the alternate strategy here. And so the, the network was down for over six and a half hours. <laughs> and in the meantime, 1,500 passengers had to actually sleep in the train or at hastily assembled accommodation. 50,000 concert goers to the Harry Styles concert, many of whom came by train, were also stranded, Jonah. What will we do? Oh, my gosh. What will we do? <laughs> yeah, this is this is just sort of the classic case of, uh, you know, keep it simple, stupid. Usually the problem is at the physical layer. And if you're not testing and monitoring on a regular basis, you should be. Yeah. I really feel that when I read this, that this was really about they weren't monitoring the SFPs for stable performance. Exactly. 
And that, no, I, I agree with your assessment, and I really think that's kind of key. Yeah, and the person writing the article says the failure of this cheap device under 100 euro had an impact which caused a loss in the millions. Just a lack of monitoring, in my opinion. Well, for want of a for want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of the horse, the battle was lost, and so forth and so on. I just want to bet you that there's a project manager in there saying, why don't we just get the cheap ones? I am absolutely certain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so next time somebody wants to say that, you can say, uh, yeah, either get yeah. good. If you want to go cheap, then get good monitoring. But if you want to have some better confidence, I'm not at all sure that even expending money on the expensive ones would have fixed this, you know? No, I don't. I don't think so necessarily. But then again, it might not have happened in the first place. I mean, the the argument here would be that the failure occurred because yeah. it was one of the you know cut rate devices. Yeah, and that's unprovable because of a lot of vendors use the same devices or their devices are the aren't. same infrastructure, the same chips, whatever. So. Yeah, that's right. It's very hard to prove the case that just a cheap device went out. So I think this is a case of more monitoring. Uh, now, this is one that you brought with us, which is uh, CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency, the U.S. government, issued a binding operational directive. Now, give me the background on this. Sure. So this is actually just brand new. This came out uh, in June 2023. And uh, CISA in- issues two forms of directives. One is a direct, you know, a directive generally, which says maybe there's a, you know, there's a particularly known vulnerability that's being exploited or an operational directive, which basically says you have to go do this or else. Now, to understand what that means, to put this in perspective, CISA can say can, is in control of all of the U.S. governments that are not defense or U.S. government agencies that are not defense department related. So all yeah. the civilian agencies mm-hmm. and the or else is that they are going to be conducting monitoring. And if you break this, you're going to be in a, in a whole heap of trouble. So basically, if you're a U.S. government agency, you are going to have to do whatever the, the operational directive says. What's mm. interesting is what this act, this particular operational directive says. And just to put this in context, I think the last operational directive was last year. So this is not something they issue every two days. What they're saying is any Internet-facing network devices, routers, switches, firewalls, VPN concentrators, proxies, load balancers have to disable remote management. Well, that's a major sea change in the way most organizations operate because typically – IT guys and network people often operate remotely and come in remotely, usually using multi-factor authentication, mm-hmm. log into their device, make their, you know, make their management changes and log out. What CISA is saying is you can't do that anymore. And very specifically, they say the fix of this is to make everything zero trust and that you have to have zero trust going end to end or else. Mm. And it's really quite interesting because even though it's a very narrow group of organizations that are directly affected, e.g. the civilian agencies of the U.S. government, it has broad implications for best practices across any private organization or any organization whatsoever. So it's one of the very first times, you know, the U.S. government has sort of been dangling a carrot, uh, the carrot of zero trust, move Mm -hmm. here, move here, move here. And now they're saying if you don't do that, you're going to be in a heap of trouble. And zero trust is interesting because it really flips the traditional network security paradigm on its head. Mm. The traditional network security paradigm is if it's bad, block it. And Zero Trust says, don't let it in unless it's proven to be good, which increases reliance on things like identity management heavily. Mm. What about out-of-band networking? Because I think the mistake most people are making is that they manage all of these externally facing firewalls, load balancers, VPN concentrators. And what we found increasingly is that the appliance versions of those are not secure. The vendors are not doing a good job of securing usually the operating system underneath. So, you know, your favorite load balancer runs on Linux and then there's a software app that runs on top and they're not doing a very good job of securing the whole device. Like Barracuda last week, 
issued a notice to all of its customers to throw away, physically turn off and dispose mm. of those appliances. They were compromised so hard that they have reason to believe that the BIOS was up to date, you know, or the whole motherboard's gone. They are replacing them, by the way, but not notwithstanding. But if people had out-of-band networks, that is, I come into this over here, and if I'm going to manage these externally facing devices, don't manage them from the internet. Manage them from an, a specifically designed, heavily restricted, heavily controlled, out-of-band network that only talks to the management ports and nothing else. I think the reality is nobody's going to build that. And the reality, the way people are actually working is, the, the use case you're talking about is typically a network engineer who's not physically there. You don't even know where he's going to be. So the question is, what is this out-of-band network that they're coming in on if it's not the internet? And the answer usually is it's some sort of virtual private network over the internet. And once again, they say, no, not even VPNs are okay. VPNs are not okay. You have to actually go zero trust from the end user's device. And that means it doesn't matter what network they're coming in on because everything is encrypted. Everything is secure. It doesn't matter what network. There's no need for an entire second network, which isn't going to work anyway if, if your network manager is sitting in a you know Starbucks. Yeah. Well, my advice is you could comply with this with an out-of-band network. That is a specific... No, you can't. You yeah. can't. That's oh, what no, I'm saying. They specifically, sure no, can. they specifically say you cannot. Okay. Your choices are turn it off or go zero trust. Well, out-of-band networks are zero trust. They're inherently no, they so, aren't. They can be. Yeah. No, no, zero trust is not a concept. It's actually an architecture. So if they don't conform to the zero trust architecture, which has, has software components for validation at the end user device, as well as at whatever mm-hmm. resource that's ac- accessing, including the networking device, if it doesn't have those components and an out-of-band network doesn't, it's not zero trust. It's zero trust. It's not a fluffy concept. It's <laughs> okay. actually an architecture. All right. And I think the other side about this, like the financial or the business angle, is that the US government is a huge buyer of products and quite often when it decides to move in a particular direction, like IPv6, for example, they've been mandated to go. To, there's been a couple of false starts there, but I think but that's- they're finally the, going, yes. Yeah, and that can actually drive certainly the Western vendors of products in a particular direction. And once it's the features and the testing and the quality, the quality, you know, the customer-led quality control, you know, in other words, the customer tests it, then we might actually see something move on this. We might see better ways to manage these devices in a zero trusty sort of a way. Uh, let's uh, get on to our final topic for today's show, which is, do you remember years ago, Jonah, immersion cooling was going to be the thing? I do. And I and I, I saw that as one of the topics for today. And I was like, wow, it's back. <laughs> <laughs> well, it turns out, no, it's not back. And it's probably okay. never going to be back. And this article delves into why. And it turns out that most of the chemicals that you would use to do immersion cooling are PFAs. Oh, my God. Those are the forever chemicals. Exactly. So what you've got now is that all of the immersion cooling systems stopped about three or four years ago because... First of all, people didn't like working on them. And honestly, I can't Yeah, blame. honestly, honestly, getting exposed to uh, permanent toxic chemicals would be a, a showstopper for me too. It would. But they were also saying, people were saying like, I used to have to take in a completely separate set of clothes. So any day that I was going to be working on this immersion cooling, I would take in a set of clothes because I'd always end up covered in this disgusting ick. And then what they used to find is that they used to leak a lot and they used to break mm. all the time. And that immersion cooling sounded like a really good idea until you actually did it, in which case you probably hated it in fairly short order. But I think the the nail in this coffin for the time being is going to be 
that the chemicals that you need to be able to use to disperse the heat, whether you're using them as pumped or whether you're using gas exchange. So some of the chemicals would actually go straight to gas and that was how you cooled and then you Mm. flooded the liquid background. They're all basically toxic chemicals and not just a little bit toxic or temporarily toxic, they're forever chemicals. So unless we can find safer fluids, I don't suppose that this will ever happen. And I suspect that liquid cooling probably, the the most time I'm going to see it is probably inside of... Uh, not immersion cooling, but liquid cooling direct to the units on a CPU maybe or something like that. But I don't think it'll ever take off. I think air cooling is always going to be the way to go. Interesting. Well, we don't normally get to announce the obituary for technology, so uh, (laughs) definitely a red-letter day. Yeah. I just think that whole immersion cooling thing was just so esoteric and weird that it's it turns out if we just cooled our data centers better, it would be easier or put refrigerated air doors on the front of a rack. It was just a whole lot easier than doing immersion cooling. Or use less power in your service. Well, that wraps go. that wraps up the news this week. Jonah, if people want to find you, where can they find you on the internet? Go look for me at LinkedIn and also hit us up at namertes.com. There's a form for joining our community where Greg and I hang out. So please go ahead and complete that form. Join us. We talk about all sorts of nerdy and geeky things, not just uh, networking, but also cybersecurity and quantum and all the fun stuff. All right. Thanks very much for listening to the show. Stay tuned for our sponsor, Tech Bytes with Nokia. We're talking about coherent optical modules and their PSE6. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we welcome back sponsor Nokia. Today we're going to get into optics, specifically Nokia's Photonic Service Engine or PSE Optics. The company has released version six of the PSEs, and we're going to talk about the growing challenges of moving more data farther and faster and what PSE six brings to the table. Our guest is Serge Mel, head of marketing for optics at Nokia. Serge, welcome to the podcast. So let's level set a bit. What are coherent optics and where do they fit into the networking space? Well, uh, coherent optics are really the engines that convert all the data that's being exchanged between users into digital that is in the form of digital bits, and it converts it into pulses of light that can then travel tens, hundreds, even thousands of kilometers uh, to get that information to where it's needed. So these are kind of like the SFPs that you might everybody might be familiar with in campus and enterprise. But they're radically different in the terms that the laser technology that's inside them is closer to magic than it is to anything else. Uh, Exactly. It's a much more sophisticated technology than these SFPs that typically connect just, you know, a few hundreds of meters or a kilometer or two. And Hmm. these um, convert the light uh, into uh, essentially highly modulated signals. And with Hmm. that, they're able to compensate for all of the various effects that uh, make it difficult to connect over long distances. And so coherent optics uh, really move the needle and enable uh, transmission of data over literally, you know, thousands of kilometers now. So let's just make sure we explain this clearly. Like a 100 gig optic in an enterprise sends one 100 gig signal or one 400 gig signal or even an 800 gig signal. These coherent optics actually multiplex multiple 400s or multiple 800s onto a single cable, right? That's right. What we call super coherent optics are optimized for maximum capacity. And the PSE6 that you mentioned um, will Mm -hmm. operate at 1.2 terabits of capacity per wavelength. So it's able to achieve much higher capacities and also do that over much longer distances uh, Mm -hmm. than these enterprise campus optics. Now, you said per wavelength, and there are many wavelengths on a fiber. Now, some of those wavelengths depend on the fiber, depend on the quality of the fiber, the propagation characteristics. Some wavelengths will work and others won't, if I remember rightly. But you're still talking 12, 24, maybe even 48 channels on a single fiber. 
that's right. Um, so all these coherent optics emit their light pulses at a very specific uh, wavelength, and that enables multiples of these coherent optics to be combined together, a technique that we call wavelength division multiplexing. And essentially, it gets uh, more total capacity through the fiber uh, with each channel operating on a different uh, frequency. Yeah, I just call that magic. Every time I think like, you know, oh, here we are in the data center, we get really wound up when we have like, you know, a 48 port switch, but there are optical systems out there that do 48 cables or 48, you know, 100 gigs, 48, 200, whatever it is on one cable. Now, of course, it's a special cable and they're mystic, the, the optic modules especially, we'll dig into them a little bit. But I just wanted to sort of emphasize that this is not... You're, this isn't just a fiber optic SFP running on single mode. This is something just a lot different. I, That's so, right. And, w- and what's also different is who uses these coherent optics. So these SFPs often can be used by enterprises, you know, within their campus, within their building. Uh, typically, coherent optics are used by service providers, mobile network operators, cable companies, uh, web scale and internet exchange carriers. And they're the ones that yeah. essentially own the fiber pipes you know, between cities, within a city, and they carry much, much more capacity than an enterprise would within its uh, internal campus. What's the power profile on something like this? Am I consuming a lot more power than I would in a typical router? Well, the the power keeps going down. So um, coherent optics are powered by digital signal processors, which is just a fancy name for a silicon integrated circuit. And each generation is able to take advantage of Moore's law, which typically both increases performance with each generation, but also reduces the power per bit. And so with the latest uh, sixth generation coherent optics, we're actually able to reduce the power per bit by about 40% from the prior generation. So you're getting the same capacity or more while using less power. And the power is super important in this case because these optical modules uh, quite often need a lot of equipment to feed the signal into them, but they also generate a lot of power in their own right. If you're going to drive a signal for you know, 80 kilometers or into a thousand miles, even though there's repeaters in the circuit, you want to launch that with the maximum possible strength. So they're actually using a lot of power. So a 40% reduction is significant. Yeah, and more and more service providers are paying real attention to their network power consumption. There's the obvious uh, monetization of that, that, you know, energy costs uh, have been swinging pretty wildly these days, have been continuing to increase. So being able to use less power per bit uh, is a net bottom line saving. But it's also part of the sustainability objectives that more and more companies are adopting, being able to operate their network sustainably, growing the capacity without having to uh, use more uh, energy in the process. So you mentioned service providers, telcos. What what are the common use cases for this kind of optic? Uh, Typically, there's sort of a few use cases. One is interconnecting data centers to each other uh, in the metro or across, you know, longer distances in a region or across mm-hmm. the country. Uh, and this could be web scale and internet exchange companies, but also service providers are doing that uh, as well. And then service providers operate uh, both metro and national networks. They connect all of the, you know, residential and business users to their central offices. They connect cities to each other so that people can 
communicate uh, across the country. And they even uh, light undersea fiber cables to be able to transmit data uh, between continents. Uh, more and more, you know, we're exchanging data in a truly mm. global sense in terms of content, business information, mission critical information. And service providers essentially provide that plumbing or the information superhighways, to use a bit of a data term, uh, to, to provide that connectivity. I haven't heard information superhighway in a while, but yes. It, it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're going retro today. I guess from the point of view that if you're a long-haul telco, the more data you can move over a cable, the more you can monetize. But at the same time, you've also got to feed data into these things. So increasingly, we're talking about, yes, I can get you know, 1.2 terabits or even up to 2.4 terabits per second out of these PSEs, you know, which gives me, you know, six by 400 gig or three by 800 gig. But the whole thing has to be part of a system. And that's where the power comes up. Or even if you're doing data center interconnect, you still got to plug them into devices. Do they go into routers today or do they still go into custom DWDM platforms? These um, super coherent optics optimized for high performance typically go into standalone optical transport systems. And the reason for that is that in order to fit an optic into a router, uh, you have to really reduce both the, the space size and the power significantly. And, and with that, it requires a lot of different compromises around the design, uh, mainly uh, giving you lower capacity and less distance. So for connecting city to each other across a national footprint or a continental footprint, you really need these high-performance optics that are deployed in standalone optical transport equipment. Right. And does this mean if I'm going from a previous version to a new version, is this something that I or a technician would swap them out myself, or am I just going to you know, buy a whole new device if I want to get the next gen? No, what's really important for service providers is they deploy the, you know, the chassis, the platforms that will host these optics. And they do that on a very large scale geographically and across many nodes. And with PSE6, essentially it can upgrade the existing platforms that are out there. So it's just adding these new, more advanced cars into existing slots and then adding more chassis if needed um, without having to replace uh, the existing mm. infrastructure that's there. So that's that's part of the sustainability and operational benefits as well as being able to introduce these new technologies into the existing infrastructure. And what about on the software side? Is this something I would run with a typical NOS or is there also specialized software to run on this kind of platform? No specialized software. You know, you're managing the platforms with a typical network management system. Now, sort of a flip side to that, though, is that these coherent optics uh, provide rich telemetry. Essentially, they can sense what's happening within the fiber and where it's happening in the fiber. So there's these new management capabilities that are being enabled now by being able to access that data and using it to then troubleshoot uh, uh, sometimes what might be problems in the network. There might be a fiber that's flapping because it's improperly installed. There could be aerial fiber that's being degraded because of ice storms. Uh, there could be earthquakes or railroads that are disrupting traffic, um, you know, because of vibrations. And all of these can be sensed by these coherent optics. And then that management software can act on it. It can do uh, proactive restoration of traffic, moving it to a different route, or it can just give technicians the information needed to go on site and fix whatever problem is happening. How does it do that sensing? Uh, essentially, coherent modulation uses uh, a v very high speed phase modulation of light. And by essentially uh, 
measuring when the light pulses are arriving with respect to each other okay. and knowing the speed of light and so on, you can localize where uh, these effects are happening. And you can also measure the magnitude of them by just how much they're affecting the signal. So it's pretty, as you were saying before, this is pretty magical stuff, <laughs> very complex algorithms. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and we've we've pretty much essentially with the PSE6, we're pretty much approaching the physical limits of what's possible in terms of uh, transmitting the maximum capacity over the, the longest distances possible. So we've pretty much reached what's called the Shannon limit, operating very close to it, and you just can't get any better than that. So, I mean, first of all, the idea that you can like shake a cable and detect if it's actually an earthquake and the size of the earthquake and whether you should start, that just feels like a high school project some sort of crazy idea from a D&D campaign <laughs> coming in and saying, you know, do you think we're going to shake up the light beams in there and can we detect it? Uh, that that just blows my mind sometimes. But the fact is you can actually use that to say, oh, there's a disaster happening in a given area and we should now start to plan a, a failover out of the affected area just because you can see that there's an earthquake. So is that what we're talking about? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, earthquakes are rare and they only happen in certain areas, but there could be effects such as construction that's happening along side where a fiber cable is deployed. And so mm -hmm. it can help uh, provide proactive warning that, hey, um, let's send a work crew out there to make sure that people don't accidentally cut the fiber or, you know, start planning to be able to restore things. Or, or it could be weather effects that are degrading the signal uh, and to prevent an outage um, until the weather, you know, conditions uh, have stopped, you can reroute the traffic around those areas where you're seeing degradations. So these are all oh, different wow. sort of use case examples for where this sensing capability uh, can add value to operators. Oh, so you're, you can herd your fiber and from, protect it from a long-necked fiber reader you know, before it even happens, perhaps. <laughs> monitoring the system. I didn't think of that. I didn't think of like, you know, a digger coming in and getting close to your cable or maybe someone's putting a building in in an area and they're actually doing it close to or on top of your fiber. You would actually have some sort of insights into that. Um, I guess the flip side here is, can we use this stuff in data center interconnects? Is that a realistic, like having 2.4 terabits or 1.2 terabits, you know, as three by 400 gigs or something like that, between data centers for data center interconnect might be a more effective way than running multiple fiber optic cables between. Is that something that enterprises can do? Yeah, absolutely. And and there's a couple of use cases around data center interconnect. So, for example, in the metro, um, a lot of, you know, web scale or interconnect net exchange uh, operators might not have that many fibers. Uh, they're either leasing or, you know, they deployed fibers a while ago, but it wasn't in large quantities. And where these kinds of super coherent optics um, come in is they can significantly increase the ca capacity of the fibers they have before they exhaust. So, for example, you mentioned, you know, pluggable optics like mm. 400 gig ZR. Well, with 400 gig ZR, you can get a maximum of about 19 terabits of capacity in the fiber. And then after that, if you're if that's your only fiber pair or, if, or it's your last fiber pair, you need mm. to either uh, lease more cables, which is very costly or even costlier is deploy new fiber cables. With PSE6, you can double the total capacity to 38 terabits per fiber. So essentially, right. it gives you more headroom uh, before you run out of capacity. And it also does this, um, this thing where it can operate in the L band of the fiber in addition to the C band. So essentially, mm -hmm. you can use twice as much of the fiber spectrum 
uh, versus 400 ZR. So you can get into 76 terabits of fiber capacity before you exhaust. So for Metro DCI applications, you know, 100 kilometers or less, it's, it's mm. a really cost-effective, simple-to-deploy way to boost the fiber capacity in constraint scenarios um, and, and defer the very, um, you know, high cost of having to overbuild fiber. But overbuilding fiber isn't a cost, it's the time usually. Uh, it, it's it's both. It's uh you know it's a civil works project of digging a trench across the city. So you know, it, it, like you say, it's very complex. Uh, it takes a lot of time, lots of permits, mm. but it also costs a lot of money. It does, but usually it's the time. You know, if because what happens is you run out of bandwidth, and then you realize you have to do something. Is my experience, and then you realize it's going to take a year to get your permits and the and to get the civil works done before you can light it up. And so this can be a way to get forward. Exactly. And then, you know, the other application for data center interconnect is more and more you have some larger web scale operators that uh, connect data centers uh, across regions or even across the country. And so you can use this in, for these long haul connections between data centers as well. And with PSE6, you can put uh, an 800 gig ethernet service connection. So, you know, that's what the latest generation of routers are using as their port interfaces. And you can carry that over 2000 kilometers over a single wavelength. So you don't have to split the signal across multiple wavelengths, or you don't have to regenerate every few hundreds of kilometers, uh, which adds a lot of power as you were talking about before. So the mm -hmm. ability to get better performance allows you to do 400 gig and 800 gig data Data center interconnect over very long distances in a very efficient hmm. manner. So this would feed into um, for a lot of clients. They're seeing Metro Ethernet pricing come down to more realistic levels. So where before, if you wanted to connect something across town or between cities, you know, bandwidth was expensive and hard to get, and now it's a lot easier. These types of devices are what's bringing those cost benefits to customers of telcos. That's right. So if you're uh, an internet exchange provider and you're leasing, you know, Ethernet connectivity between your data centers, well, you're you're getting it from a service provider that's probably using this type of technology to be able to drive down the cost per bit. Hmm. Well, we're out of time. I feel like we sort of just scratched the surface on uh, coherent optics. So if uh, folks are interested in finding out more, digging into this more, Serge, where should they go? Yeah, there's a lot more to learn. Come to our webpage at nokia.ly slash PSE-6S, and you can get a lot more information there. All right. That's nokia.ly slash PSE-6S. We'll have that link in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Uh, Serge, thanks for being here. Thanks for the interesting conversation. Uh, thank you to Nokia for being a sponsor. Sponsorships uh, make it possible for the Packet Pushers to do what we do. And as always, thank you for listening. If you like this episode, you can find many more fine free technical podcasts and our community blog and videos all at PacketPushers.net. Follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.